you're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Presented by Jill Carpenter. Welcome listeners. Today my guest is David Glover, uh, a resident of Halifax, a well-known speaker on a wide variety of local historical subjects. He's written many articles for local newspapers and for Northern magazines, and he's currently president of Halifax Antiquarian Society, vice chair of Halifax Civic Trust and chair of the Friends of Lister Lane Cemetery, which is the subject of today's episode. So welcome, David. Good morning, Jill. Lovely to see you. How can I help? Yeah, it's fair to say, I think, David, you're quite a familiar face to local history buffs, aren't you? Well, yes, I suppose that's true. Yes. <laughs> so the, there might be a few people listening to this who, who were familiar with you, know your face. Lister Lane Cemetery. We should probably establish where it's located, first of all. Yes, well, it's in the western part of Halifax surrounded by terraces Mm. and uh, today it's like a green lung in a very built-up area but when it was founded 180 years ago it was on the outskirts of the town literally with fields around it so very very different. I've I've seen um, pictures of the the cemetery as it is now it does look really beautiful Um, the Friends of Lister Lane have done a fabulous job. We call it Lister Lane Cemetery, don't we? But it was originally known as the Halifax General Cemetery, uh, which gives it an impression of being quite large and welcoming to, to all denominations. Uh, was, was this the case? Yes, it was revolutionary because it was non-denominational. So it meant that anybody could be buried there of different faiths or of none and that was radical for the 1840s it meant that you could have catholics buried alongside baptists congregationalists unitarians methodists and so on and uh, it was never consecrated so it had slightly different rules to a churchyard um why why was it needed at the time and who was responsible for its design and construction? Well, in the days when it was mooted, the idea had to come before a private group of individuals, because in the 1830s and early 1840s, there was no municipality of Halifax, there was no borough, there was no control of local government as we knew it a few years later. That came in 1848. So this was a private venture, particularly by three local businessmen, and they set out to have an independent cemetery because the chapel yards in the centre of Halifax were filling up fast. In fact, some of them were over full. New chapels were being founded, which didn't have their own burial space. And an independent cemetery was really required. You mentioned the fact that it was originally called Halifax General Cemetery. That name really continued down to the foundation of Stony Royd, which of course was the municipal cemetery that was founded nearly 20 years later. Mm, Okay. Where is Stony Royd in relation? So Stony Royd lies to the south of Halifax, about three quarters of a mile up on a hillside. Uh, It's really a very pretty and attractive location, very different to Lister Lane. I suppose it's a little over a mile away. And there was a certain amount of rivalry between the two burying places in the early days. Am I right in thinking there was a meeting convened to form a committee and shares were sold? That's right. So like a private company where they will sell shares, it was started off with a view to investing so that this could be run as an independent entity. And in fact, it did so successfully for well over 100 years under its own private management company. And um, the Crossley brothers, they were 
key shareholders, weren't they? Yes, um, we have examples of the original share certificates and we have examples of old fashioned uh, records for burials too, which are all very interesting. The Crossleys of Dean Clough, of course, who became the greatest carpet manufacturers in the world, were very prominent in their support of the cemetery and they bought this large space which became a vault in three sections, which is much larger than any other burying place at Lister Lane. Was it very different in appearance from established churchyards? Did it have any distinctive characteristics? Well, I suppose it did insofar as you had a little chapel, which was non-denominational, and that meant that anybody could use that at their wish for last rites, whatever they wanted to do. There was also on site a house which was for the cemetery keeper who doubled as the chief stonemason, carved the memorials or the tombstones. This was something which became much more normal as municipal cemeteries came along during the 19th century. But of course, churchyards always had their own churches and so did chapel yards. So it was something a bit different. I noticed on uh, the Lister Lane website, they were talking about workshops for stonemasons. Did, did they employ several stonemasons then? Yes. The detail is a little bit vague. We know that Simeon Cordingley, who was the most important early cemetery keeper and stonemason who came from a quarrying family, he had others who helped him. There does seem to have been some overlap with other cemeteries and churchyards because we have certain monuments which were carved by people from elsewhere. And for instance, recently I, I was up at uh, the Haywood Chapel at North Aurum and found several monuments there carved by Simeon accordingly of Lister Lane Cemetery. So there was this overlap in creating monumental structures. That's a great name, isn't it? Simeon Cordingly. <laughs> would he have some kind of distinctive characteristic that you would recognise from the, the gravestone or, or did they actually sign them at the time? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, the large monuments, uh, the ones that are most ostentatious, they were rather keen to sign, yes. So Simeon Cordingly, for example, and others, did sign that when I say sign that means they carved their name on a lower section which tells you it was their work. Right. When when did it open and, and how was it received by the general population of Halifax? Well it was a completely new venture of course until this time everybody had to be buried in consecrated ground or in a chapel yard. So these earlier types of burying place were what people were used to. This, as I've explained, was independent. And I do think the fact that there was rather a slow start in the burials may indicate that people took a little while to get used to the idea. The cemetery was formally opened at the end of 1841 with the first interment in January 1842 but there were really very few burials the first year. They speeded up within a few years and by the 1850s, you know, they, they, it was absolutely massive. And if you go through the 19th century and you come up to 1900, the cemetery by that time was basically seven eighths full. Wow. It was built on two different levels wasn't it so you had an upper level and a lower level and am I right in thinking the upper level had underground crypts incorporated? Yes strictly speaking vaults and when I say vaults they were very simple vaults. The area under the top of the cemetery does contain these brick lined spaces which are hollow so when they were planning the cemetery, and it took several years, and it was created out of what had basically been a couple of fields, they divided the cemetery into two in their minds and in their plans. 
they heaved a lot of the earth away from the upper part, which is on a slope, down to the lower section and created these vaults on the top section, which were covered over, of course. But this is where the more ostentatious graves, and it cost more to be buried there, that's where they are today. The lower section down some steps, although you don't have to go down the steps, you can go down the side on a path. That is earth, although you could have a vault built into the earth if you were buried down there. And that was a cheaper burial. So if, if it's a vault, is that generally in the upper section? And instead of being buried, you'd be put into a basically a a brick lined <laughs> yes, um, a chasm a chasm yes. yeah. <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm not overly familiar with them um that's interesting but it wasn't just a simple division of wealth was there between the upper and the lower so you didn't get all the rich people in the upper level and all the poor people in the lower it was it was quite uh, egalitarian yes although Seeing that the cost, the charge for being buried in the top section was more, you're going to get certain people who insisted on being there if they had the money. However, if we look at the case of a number of the founders of the Halifax Permanent Building Society, founded in Halifax the end of 1852, they chose to be buried, several of them, right down the bottom of the cemetery, fairly unostentatious. Mind you, the Building Society was not that influential. It was just one of many in those days. But the monuments to those men are fairly plain, really. Um, do you know how much it cost to be buried there? Yes. So it, it varied. First of all, you've got to consider the two sections of the cemetery. And for a grave in the top section you would pay four pounds for one in the bottom section three pound ten shillings so that's slightly less in the bottom section mm. there were charges according to whether it was a first opening of a grave or a repeat burial in a plot and all sorts of things had to be taken into account like this you had to find your own minister or somebody to give the last uh, words over the deceased. So there were various rules and regulations. Those figures I've quoted were from the very early days. Would four pounds be an, an awful lot of money? And Woods was three pounds a lot of money in those days? Yes, it depends on how you calculate, and I'm not the best to do this, but I think we'd say it was into hundreds of pounds. Yeah. Is it true that the, the committee were flexible in terms of, say, if it was, there was somebody who was quite poor, who couldn't afford it, would, would they have a meeting and decide, well, in actual fact, we'll take, you know, a donation or something like that? Yes, there was a special rate of eight shillings, or I suppose it's 40 pence in today's money, but you must allow for inflation indeed a burial in a common grave that's what it said in the original prospectus it's not very much and you would then be buried with a lot of other people you'd never heard of uh, you know sometimes as many as 30 people in one single plot which is incredible so it would have been something very simple the requirements did state in the cemetery prospectus that everybody should be buried in a coffin because we wondered how this would work yes i was just thinking then i had this image of them just putting them in a shroud and in the ground well we'd wondered about that you know whether there mm. was some method if you're going to cram all these people into a small space it's not very nice or hygienic but it does say that they did require a coffin how simple that coffin was is a question i suppose they could make coffins out of all sorts of things couldn't they yeah. and but at least these people got to have their resting place in a, in a beautiful environment because the actual cemetery was landscape, wasn't it, to be attractive? That's right. It was really designed as a sort of a, almost like a park 
and uh, shrubs were bought before it was opened, you know, to ornament it, presumably around the edges. I'm not quite sure whether we have any descendants of those today. There may be some, but there's a way in which there was careful forethought over landscaping. And we have to remember that the Victorians would regularly go and visit places where their relatives were interred. And I imagine at times there have been quite a lot of people on site when the cemetery was in regular use. And people would promenade around the paths as well. All in all, there are over 20,000 people lying resting there, aren't there? Um, some of these people are remarkable, either because they're notorious or pillars of Halifax society. Um, we could talk about a few of them. So if we start with the Crossley brothers now, they all ended up there, didn't they? Yes. John, Joseph and Francis. Yes, well, as, as we've already said, they were investors in the cemetery and they bought this large plot, uh, which is in three sections for the three brothers and their families or descendants. And uh, they continued to be buried there until the early 20th century. They um, contributed quite extensively to Halifax, didn't they? They were philanthropists, <laughs> I'm sure I say that right. Um, and as you mentioned as well, Crossley's carpets ended up being the biggest carpet manufacturer in the world. Was it Francis Crossley who designed a mechanical way of weaving? with, with yeah. another gentleman. George Collier, he, he employed George Collier, who was also buried at Lister Lane, to try to mechanize the making of carpets. So he had to invent a power loom for weaving carpets, which had not been done until that time. But Collier had worked on the mechanization of linen manufacture at Barnsley, and he was invited to Halifax by Francis Crossley. There were many attempts which didn't quite work, but by the end of 1850, a scheme had been worked and a power loom was available. And this meant that many more carpets could be made in a day than before, about 15 times, I think, production by hand. And then of course, Crosses were able to patent their, uh, their weaving mechanisms, their weaving looms, and this allowed them to draw lots of money down as well by selling these patents to other manufacturers. And they became very, very wealthy. They had at the height over 5,000 people working at Dean Clough. And we're absolutely sure, although the details are a bit scanty in places, that there are hundreds of them buried at this Lane. He was quite well liked, wasn't he, Francis? Um, he died suddenly of a heart attack. A lot of the shops and the pubs closed on the day of his funeral, didn't they? And a lot of people attended. Yes, the way the Victorians took this sort of system seriously of death, having black-edged newspapers when somebody important died, like Sir Francis in 1872. You have a look, I, you find the columns in the newspapers were surrounded by black ink. This was in the late 19th century and was fairly regularly used. You had to have a certain status. Mm. So Francis Crossley, in fact, the Crossley family in general seemed to have suffered from some type of heart disease. I was thinking that because all three of them quite yes. suddenly died of, of this affliction. So the, the, the funerals were very ostentatious. Thousands of people would cram into the streets. The mornings of the funerals, the shops would all be closed and such like. And this was a great tribute to people who were regarded as, shall we say, worthy. Mm. Francis Crossley had indeed given a lot back to Halifax. He had presented People's Park to the town, which is quite close, almshouses and such like. The brothers, other brothers, had other ways in which they had contributed, model village, other almshouses and in the town, developments around the town hall. They all contributed to this town in to the same degree. 
Yes, and we shouldn't forget that they contributed, or rather two of them contributed in the political arena considerably. Yeah. Joseph was much more in the background. He seems to have been particularly the mill manager, meticulously managing everything that went on at Dean Clough, while his brothers entered politics. So John, the eldest of the three, he was mayor of Halifax four times, and of course a councillor and alderman before that. Uh, later on, for a short while, he was an MP for Halifax in the 1870s. Francis, while not entering local politics, became an MP for Halifax earlier than his elder brother, later going on to be an MP for the West Riding constituency and then a division of that. So he was an MP for many years. It's quite a nice little... Uh connection to someone else who was um, buried at Lister Lane as well, Joseph Sugden. Actually, I didn't even realise that Humphrey Thwackham was his pen name. I thought it was his real name. He's connected to Francis Crossley, isn't he? Well, that's right, yes. And his vault is immediately in front of the Crossley vault, almost like blocking it. It's rather strange. <laughs> It's huge pinnacle, almost blocking the access. But they were friends. It wasn't done out of any rivalry. Yeah. And in fact, Sugden was the political agent for Francis Crossley in the 1850s. A prominent liberal in the town. He himself served as a councillor for a short while. Uh, a very able man. He mentioned Humphrey Thwackham. This was his pseudonym or for when he was creating political cartoons and both in your local studies library and in archives there are examples of these one of the most amusing or several of the most amusing have sir francis crossley's head attached to a <laughs> racehorse and sugden holding on to the reins of this racehorse as though he's as the agent you see he's trying to encourage the racehorse yeah those cartoons, they're, they're incredible. I think that they're, they're favourites of all of us who work there. <laughs> I wish more people would come in and, and have a look at them. Maybe yeah. they will now. Um, there's also a, a Bronte connection, isn't there, to, to Joseph Sugden? Yes, he was one of a small group of local men, as we say, an artistic or poetic, able to write, mm. um, who associated with... Branwell Bronte in his youth. He was a similar age to Branwell when Branwell used to come drinking in Halifax. And there was this small coterie. Joseph Sugden was an early contributor to the Halifax Courier from its very first issue in 1853. He was writing little accounts of life in Halifax and a bit about the history. And then he used a pseudonym Josephus. Confusing. Hmm. <laughs> Bramwell had done a sketch called The Rescue of the Punch Bowl, which had three people um, as the characters in it, and they all went by pseudonyms, and um, Joseph Sugden, as it, it was worked out, was one of those. Yes, it was a famous sketch by Bramwell. I think it was right towards the end of his life. There's, there's someone else buried there who, who has a Bronte connection as well, isn't there? Um, James Uriah Walker. He owns the uh, Halifax Guardian newspaper, is that, is that right? And its offices. Yes, that's right. He was the editor for many, many years from the 1840s through to the 1860s. The Halifax Guardian was the earliest regular Halifax newspaper that survived. Started off in 1832, I think it was. The link with the Brontes there was that the editor had to preside over rather a complicated situation. It was to do with claims about how Charlotte Bronte had been treated at the clergy daughter's school. And the wife of the vicar of Mythamroyd wrote in to defend the way the girls had been treated there. And Charlotte Bronte's husband, Arthur Bell Nichols, had a, shall we say, an opposing view. <laughs> this was all played out in the late 1850s. 
in this newspaper's columns. And in the end, the editor or the owner had to make sure that this controversy was squashed so that it didn't continue because nobody could agree with each other. It's a bit like um, social media nowadays, isn't it? <laughs> Very much. Not quite so instant. No. Um, so this is this Cowan Bridge. That's right, Cowan Bridge. And the, that's the, the place that Charlotte Bronte based um, the school in Jane Eyre on. That, that is what is believed, yes. Another person buried there who met quite a grisly end, uh, William Crabtree, founder of Crabtree and Son News Agents and Printers. What, what happened to him? Well, he had a business in Waterhouse Street. It's still there today. And towards the end of 1870, he was attacked in his bedroom by somebody who was alleged to have got into his house or into his premises. The reason there was controversy about it was there was a claim that his eldest son was the chap who had attacked him. But there did seem to be proof that somebody else might have got into the premises through a side door. So basically, Crabtree was hacked to death in the presence of his younger son, who was sleeping in the same room. Great tragedy. A police constable was almost instantaneously outside, hearing some shouting, rushed in. And the son, the elder son, who was alleged to have attacked his father, was arrested. There didn't seem to be any what we'd call forensic evidence. Uh, but he was sent for trial but he was found not guilty. A lot of people did think he did it, but that is not proof. So he was uh, let off and nobody was ever prosecuted for this murder. And Mr. Crabtree was taken to Lister Lane for burial. It was his son, Walter, wasn't it? He did seem to have a grudge against his father. And the, the youngest son, he refused to say who we thought the culprit was. Yeah, the younger son was just a boy and he saw the attack. But he only saw it in the semi-darkness. It must have been, you know, almost impossible to identify who was in the room, who came in. And he was adamant that it was not his elder brother who had attacked his father. So that probably helped his elder brother Walter's case too. I was just wondering if have there been any notable women found there? It's one of our sadnesses, really, that we can't identify a lot of women as hugely significant. It's perhaps typical of the Victorian age and the early 20th century age when women did not have many professions that they could operate under. We have a prominent nurse at the infirmary who we've identified. And we have a, a lady who sang in public quite regularly, Mary Tankard, who actually was one of a group who went to sing with others from Halifax at the opening of the Great Exhibition in 1851 at the Crystal Palace in London. Oh. She was a great soprano singer in the West Riding and the understudy of the well-known Mrs. Sunderland. Ah, oh, the Mrs. Sunderland competition, I remember that, because I, I grew up in Huddersfield, uh, and they still, do they still have that in the town hall? Yes, every year the competitions. What is sad, of course, also, is that so many women weren't educated. There'd have been a tremendous lot of illiterate women who might have had very interesting tales to tell, I'm sure they did. There were one or two married and widowed women who did their bit in the community. Uh, we're talking about days before women could enter politics, though. One of the Whitley ladies, Lucy Whitley, the wife and widow of Nathan Whitley, was very prominent in trying to promote women's education in Halifax at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th. In those days, that's how you were known, wasn't it? You were the wife of someone, and and um, and that was that was your public name, basically, either the wife or the widow, or yes, 
Mm. Indeed. And I mean, so if you were Mrs. Nathan Whitley, you were Mrs. Nathan Whitley. You yes. probably <laughs> didn't use in public. Your first name would hardly be used. You'd be addressed by your husband's name, which is pretty poor, isn't it? Yeah, you you forget your own name almost. Oh, mm. What was what was my name? <laughs> no one's ever used it since I was about five years old. It is good that we have her to tell the story, to encourage women to become educated when so many of them earlier had been deprived of education and were basically pretty illiterate. Um. When, when and why did this cemetery stop being used in the end? Was it because it was full? I mentioned earlier on that the cemetery was basically seven-eighths full by 1900. Mm. This created some problems. doesn't mean to say it was literally full, but it means that most of its plots had been taken up and there was little space for making new graves. So a lot of the burials post-1900 were in the graves already available, so people buried with their family, basically. As the 20th century wore on, the number of burials declined for this same reason. There was less and less space, and I suppose some of the graves gradually became full too. In 1950, the private cemetery company folded, and the Borough Council, the Halifax Borough Council, was forced to take over the administration, which it did. But by that time, the burials had slowed to a basic trickle. And in 1963, a final decision was taken to close the cemetery. No more burials at all after the middle of 1963. So it operated for about 121 years. The very last burial, in Lister Lane Cemetery took place in May 1963, and it was the burial of Kathleen May Ratkowski. She was the wife of a Polish chap who'd moved into Halifax, and she was resident at the time of her death at the Arden Road Almshouses. She was 61, and that was the very final interment at Lister Lane. I do like the um, Arden Road almshouses. They're extremely attractive, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Somebody once compared their beautiful architecture to that of a, a quad at Oxford University, and I do see where they're coming yeah. from. They're so substantial, the Gothic style absolutely wonderful and we owe that to Joseph Crossley of course. And um, while we're on the subject of who and when, um, do we know who the first person to be buried there was? So if we look back at the very early days of the cemetery, the first burial was of a little boy of three months called Charles Cooper and he was buried on the 12th of January, 1842. His parents were Henry and Anne Cooper, and the burial cost six shillings. Being a child, it was less than an adult. The very earliest burial of which we have a stone, because the little boy doesn't have a stone to commemorate him, was that of Maria Baxendale, and she was buried later in 1841. Both those interments were right down at the bottom of the cemetery. Is there a way that people can see the, the records of who was buried at Lister Lane? Yes, we have a huge database which was created by our secretary, Anne Wilkinson, and it was created from duplicate records which are held at Park Wood, the head of the bereavement services today. So two sets of records, I suppose both had to be checked against one another, and they survived from the very earliest days right down to 1963, with all the names of the deceased, including many, many who have no tombstone. And of course, 
a very tragic number of infant death names, particularly in the 19th century. So this is an enormous resource of uh, nearly 20,000 people. If you have people in your family who are likely to be buried in Halifax, you can check with us, the friends, via our website, and we will look that up for you. So um, in the 1980s, if we jump forward, it received some help from Manpower Services, is that right? Yes, so the, the history of Lister Lane Cemetery from about the time the council took over in 1950 was one of increasing decline. By the 1960s, it had be begun to be overgrown, it wasn't being maintained properly. Um, seating and such had been vandalised. And by the 1980s, the cemetery had lost its gates, there'd been vandalism on the site of other kinds, vandalism to stones. But there was a Manpower Services Commission group which did a wonderful clearance in the late 80s and also made a list of all the monumental inscriptions they could find. So that was a great resource in itself. We still use that list, although we have discovered more tombstones since, and we've actually lost one or two also, which is bizarre. Uh, but after that one clearance, unfortunately, nobody followed it up and this gaping open cemetery became very overgrown like a wilderness or jungle again. And it needed rescuing. This is where Friends of Lister Lane come in, isn't it? How did it get started? In the late 1990s, a lady called Harriet Dow, who was actually a descendant of Joseph Crossley and who was very interested in local history, although not native to this area, she had a family connection, but she was equally interested in the fact that there were about 20,000 people buried here in this space which was terribly overgrown, open to the elements, people could wander in and cause damage. In fact, the very first time Harriet visited the cemetery, she said she felt as though she was threatened by somebody on site. So she got together a group of concerned local people. This is things in a nutshell, it took a while. But by 2000, she'd formed a committee and in due course registered a public charity as the Friends of Lister Lane Cemetery with a view to bringing the cemetery back from the brink. The cemetery was and remains the, in the ownership of Calderdale Metropolitan Borough Council, but they were very supportive of the idea and happy for this group to be formed. And Harriet led it for the first 10 or 12 years as the secretary. She also secured the registering of the site as a grade two listed park and garden, which was valuable in itself. So how many members were there? The number of members has never been large. It sort of fluctuated between something like eight and 16, the active members. We have many other members who are, you know, who support us, but don't actually work on site. So we have to differentiate there. Uh, so we're qu quite a small team, really, and always have been. We're always looking, of course, for more recruits because our major task is to keep down the undergrowth, but also recognise that this is a wildlife resource. A number of women over the past seven years have created a garden at Lister Lane, and this has enhanced the site immensely. And we've even planted new shrubs and new fruit trees of old fashioned varieties. It sounds very hands on, really. To begin with, I guess you were you were going in there with your thorn proof gloves and <laughs> and, you know, hacking away at the brambles. Um, what have been your most exciting discoveries? Well, I think uh, we mentioned earlier the fact that there'd been this list created by the Manpower Services Commission in the 1980s, this list of tombstones. And uh, one of the most remarkable finds was made by my colleague Stuart when he found the tombstone, which had not been recorded, of the bellman of Halifax in the 19th century. This was the town crier 
who went around the town with his bell announcing events, lost people, lost children, lost items. And he actually announced one of the Chartist meetings in 1842. We knew he was buried in the cemetery and we knew where, but we thought there was no stone and Stuart did a bit of prodding with a fork one day and felt that there was a stone under the surface and he did a bit of digging and he found this tombstone of David Moorhouse a remarkable man, blind, yet he'd lived a very full life and he lived to the age of 84. That was one of the exciting moments, I think, uh, because I'd read quite a lot about this chap and I thought it was sad he didn't have a tombstone. And, you know, I was really, really pleased and excited by this find. It must be great to actually uncover something, to scratch around and then find something with an inscription on do you go out in all weathers then? Is it a regular thing? <laughs> I wouldn't like to say that. It depends on people's availability. We tend to work on a Sunday morning, those available, and on a Wednesday. It doesn't always work like that, but that's the time when we usually have the cemetery open because uh, as there have been one or two problems, we have to keep the cemetery locked most of the time, which is a pity because it would be nice for people to go in and uh, enjoy at any time, but it just really isn't practicable. Regarding working on the site, various people have different duties. Some deal with gardening of the flower variety, weeding, mowing, strimming, there's even a bit of stone maintenance and such done. Even things such as brushing, very basic. Brushing gravestones. Yes. Yes. They can easily get covered in the autumn of winter, of course, by leaves. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you've been mowing or strimming, you get uh, debris from that. Yeah. I expect at this time of year, the summer, you've got quite a job on, really. You come back a week later and everything's grown up <laughs> from the week before. Yes. The site is actually nearly three acres, which is quite a size, and you can't just mow it with a mower because there are things like curbstones in the way. So it's challenging at times. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you have to keep it locked. Did you, did you have to buy new gates for it then? So in the early days when Harriet was engaging with the Borough Council, that was in 2000, she gained their consent to put gates back on the empty space at the gateposts, and that was a great boon. There are gates on three sections, and they are fairly robust. Particularly from 2013, we've had a number of interpretive information boards with illustrations placed within the cemetery and also seating. Apart from one simple information board near the entrance. We didn't have anything of that nature till nine years ago. The chapel in the cemetery lost its roof in the 1990s, the roof fell in, and that required a lot of maintenance and stabilizing by the borough council. So we have a, a cemetery chapel, a small chapel without a roof, which isn't publicly accessible except for bees. We have a beekeeper who has a number of hives which are locked inside the cemetery chapel and they seem very happy there and we're very happy to have them because of course they fly around and pollinate all our wonderful flowers. Yeah. Do you make honey? Is there Lister Lane honey? We haven't quite got to that. We might get an occasional pot. We, we don't produce the honey ourselves. It's not our product. But the benefits, I'm sure, go to the local community. We do have a wide variety of wildlife. I mean, we saw a fox, Mike and I saw a fox there last night. Oh. But we, don't, we don't highlight foxes, but there are foxes at births in the cemetery. And they make use of the pigeons that wander through and fly in. It's quite apparent that, uh, you know, that is their lunch or their tea. You find a few gizzards lying around, do you? Yes, and feathers. Gizzards, <laughs> oh. feathers and beaks, sadly. Oh. 
usually the you know the larger pigeons they can't get off the ground so easily as the smaller birds yes there's quite a variety of wildlife i haven't seen them lately but a few years ago we had some jays nesting in one of the trees which mm. was very interesting and uh, we have anything from wrens through to jackdaws and wood pigeons wide variety of insect life lepidoptera so it, it, it has to be always recognized that there is this green attitude we need to maintain not to manicure the cemetery so that it's left in a in a sterile condition yes because a lot of these creatures depend on you know the cover the green cover whatever the tree life some of the plants the flowers and so on yeah they say you're supposed to leave a nettle corner in your garden don't they that's right uh, the butterflies mm. like it yes and when you're mowing this is just a general observation if you mow through or, or strim i should say strim through nettles you get that distinctive scent that you do when you cut nettles it's it's so interesting this sort of thing like we have quite a bit of ragwort but when that is strimmed through or we leave a bit of that because it has advantages for some of the moths but the uh, the way in which you get these different scents when you cut through the stems of these different plants we've got too much ivy in one or two sections that also has its own scent when you cut through it yeah it's been 180 years since since the cemetery was opened um have you been doing anything to mark the occasion we had an open day in may to try and celebrate this after a fashion and it worked quite well we had lots and lots of visitors very shortly from the time of recording we're going to have the unveiling of a new chartist information board at lister lane which has been funded by the trades unions who are very interested in the Chartists who are buried at Lister Lane. And it's the result of a certain amount of research which has been done over the years, which really started with Harriet Dell's work back in 2006, when she began researching the Chartists and held a small Chartist anniversary festival in Halifax. One of the notable Chartists, Ben Rushton, He's buried there, isn't he? Yes, and this new information board is very close to where he lies buried and another chartist alongside him. Ben Rushton was the firebrand, really, the orator of the chartists over many, many years, from the 1830s right through to 1850 and beyond, when he was getting on in years. And his funeral, held at Lister Lane in 1853, is said to have been the most massive of funerals in the history of Halifax or up to that date. Uh, the coffin came down in a procession from Ovenden through part of the town centre and up to Lister Lane and it said there were up to 10,000 people on the streets or in the cemetery that day, which seems incredible and is probably impossible, but figures can get inflated. It was certainly a very, very notable event and a great tribute to a remarkable man from a very humble background. Even topping the Crossley brothers. It may well have done. Uh, we're not absolutely sure of all these numbers, but it, it's very interesting that a radical who grew up in poverty and was basically self-educated could rise to such heights of popularity in the mid-19th century. Karl Marx even wrote a memoir, didn't he, in the New York Daily Tribune. That's right. To Ben Rushton, which is incredible. Yes, I think these men who could rouse interest in the rights of the common man, and it did tend to be the common man rather than the common woman, I'm afraid, in those days. Mm. Uh, they were very important, and even if they didn't achieve absolutely during their lifetimes what they'd set out to do, the points of the Charter, most of them came into 
law, most of them were brought into law by the later 19th century. Yeah, I'd love to get talking about the Chartists, but that, I think that's the subject of another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> so um, in, in general, if, if people would like to come and visit the cemetery and have a look at the graves, can they just turn up on, on the, the opening days? When we have our working parties, normally on a Sunday morning and on a Wednesday, the cemetery is open, although it may not be attended. We do have stipulated open days, the details of which are circulated either by Twitter or given on our website. However, it's perfectly possible for us to arrange private tours. We do group tours every year for local history and family history groups and other groups too. Individuals who are interested in looking at particular graves are welcome also. They just need to email us uh, via our website. Um, and you are looking for new members, aren't you, people to, to come and help maintain the cemetery? So again, they would need to contact you via email, wouldn't they? That is the easiest way. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, it's been really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jill. It's lovely to be with you, and I hope this will be of interest to some and will attract some more interest to Lister Lane Cemetery. I'm sure it will. I'm sure there's quite a number of people who don't even know it exists and would love to come and have a look round or indeed volunteer to help. And if you'd like to know more about the Friends of Lister Lane Cemetery, you can visit their website, www.listerlanecemetery.co.uk or email them on friendsofllc at yahoo.co.uk. You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries, produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when I will be chatting with local writer and cartographer Christopher Goddard.